Luke 23, 32 through 38, two others who are criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is Christ, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. We added that little statement uh, after our scripture reading. It seems fitting to respond in affirmation uh, to the word of God. And some, some circles, uh, the word of God is read, and that happens automatically. You might say amen or something we find around here. Uh, we might need a little encouragement and prompting to respond. Uh, but... You know, if that statement felt maybe rote and awkward when we started using it, I wonder if it still feels that way now that we are reading of uh, the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Praise be to you, O Christ. That one sentence, in a way, uh, summarizes the point uh, of all of Scripture. In Revelation 7, you know, the Apostle John shared a vision which, is, which was given to him by Christ himself. God's goal for humanity, his goal for the church. John says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And that is God's vision, to gather to himself a people, a multitude of people from every tribe and nation, ethnicity, skin color, language, every dialect, every culture, to make them one, unite them in worshiping God through Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, to redeem them and to make them a kingdom and priests to God. And until then, our mission, our purpose as a body of believers is to embody that vision together and to move one another closer to that vision in edification, building one another up, and to bring others into that great multitude of people through evangelism. And speaking of our purpose as a church, it's worth reflecting now on the fact that uh, Pastor Mike, my predecessor in the role of senior pastor anyway, Retired almost one year ago today, I looked through my email and there was one that said if October 16th of 2022 would be his last official day, so I guess this Tuesday means it's my one year anniversary here, and this coming January will have been 10 years uh, from when I started here as the associate pastor of youth music, bat catching, and other duties as assigned back in January of 2014. These kinds of anniversaries are good reminders to pause and to reflect on 
where we've been and where we are going, what is our vision, what is our purpose as a church, does it reflect the vision of Revelation chapter 7, the vision of Scripture, is our vision culminating in praise be to you, O Christ, as the name we've taken. As I was preparing to take on this role that I'm now in, over a year ago, I found a list of metrics, we might call them, for evaluating the health of a church. These come from a book called The Gospel-Driven Church uh, by Jared C. Wilson. Uh, His first name is Jared, and he spells it correctly, so you know it has to be good. There are five metrics of grace, he calls them. And number one, I'll I'll list them all, it's worth sharing them, uh, because I think they are good, but number one is a growing esteem for Jesus Christ growing esteem for Jesus Christ. Number two is a discernible spirit of repentance. Number three, a dogged devotion to the word of God. Number four, an interest in theology and doctrine. And number five, an evident love for God and neighbor. All of those are crucial, but I believe number one is the heart of it all, a growing esteem for Jesus Christ. This morning, a question to ask yourself, are you growing in your esteem for Jesus Christ? This is your first task, I believe, as a follower of Jesus. Now, your first priority is simply to receive the love of God for you in Christ, to rest in his mercy and grace. As Paul puts it, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's our first priority, to receive what was accomplished outside of us, apart from us, and for us, without us even knowing to ask for it, right? And then your first task, first thing that needs to be happening in you after you have received what was done for you is to grow in your esteem for Jesus Christ. Your awe, your wonder, your respect, your love for Christ your Savior. There are other commands and talking points further down on that list, a discernible spirit of repentance, dogged devotion to God's word, interest in theology and doctrine, certainly love for God and love for neighbor. But all of those, I think, will get off on the wrong foot if they are not rooted and grounded in these basics of the faith, receiving Christ's love for us, growing in our love for Christ. To try to do those other things apart from that core would be like An orchestra decides we don't have time to warm up or tune our instruments because we have this difficult symphony to perform, or if that analogy is too, um, you know, whatever, me for for you. What if an athlete says, I don't have time to eat properly or to stretch or to warm up. I have a marathon to run, right? The basics of our faith, our relationship to God through Jesus Christ is never something we outgrow. It's not merely the foundation for everything else, like a foundation in your home that you hope is built once and then you can take it for granted for many years to come. The basics of God's love for you, which fires your love for God, is the chemical reaction, the internal combustion that drives the pistons of your Christian life, needs constantly to be fueled, and it's also the destination toward which the whole Christian life is driving us. And that brings us to the message today. Today is the first of three messages I'm planning to deliver where we will reflect on the cross of Christ. 
we will reflect on basic truths of the Christian message, truths that I hope you've heard before, but if not, I'm glad you're going to hear them today. And my prayer is that we would grow in our esteem for Christ as we reflect on his selfless love for us. And so with that, we'll focus simply on on three basic truths of, of who Christ is, what he's accomplished for us today. The first truth we see in Luke's account is best expressed in the words of the prophet Isaiah, that he was numbered among the transgressors. We see this in verses 32 and 33, where we learn that Jesus was not the only person to be delivered over to crucifixion that day. There were two others who were criminals, who were led away to be put to death with him. I'm not, uh, I'm not playing video games, by the way, here. I'm trying this new way to control the slides with my phone. There were two others who were led away to be put to death with him, and they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, most English translations smooth something over for us in verse 32, where it says two others who were criminals. The most natural translation of verse 32 would be to say two other criminals were also led away. Two other criminals, and you can see why English translations supply some extra words, the words who were criminals there, because otherwise it seems to imply that Christ himself was a criminal. There were even some early scribes copying the Greek manuscripts who altered the word order in order to try to clarify that these two others were criminals, but Jesus is not. And I'm I'm not sure that I would translate it differently. It is a good idea to be clear that Jesus is innocent. That's clear in the rest of the text, right? Even Pilate finds him innocent. He's not a criminal. He is not an evildoer. But the translation does lose something profound that Jesus, at that moment on the road to the place called the skull, is numbered among the transgressors. He is counted as a criminal. There's a reason that Christ is not crucified alone here, but crucified among transgressors. I wonder if for Rome and for his enemies among the Jewish leadership, maybe this is part of an attempt to erase Jesus. If he had died alone, his death would be the main story. It could be a special event, perhaps. Instead, he's just one more wretch that the Romans have nailed up there to die. If this was the intent on any level, it failed miserably. Jesus' enemies, uh, the devil included, really, are almost like characters in a Greek tragedy where their attempts to stop him from fulfilling the prophecy become the very means by which that prophecy is fulfilled, right? In the previous chapter, Luke Luke chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus said that what was written must be fulfilled in him, and he quoted Isaiah 53, that he would be numbered among the transgressors. So one point we see quite clearly here is that God's promises cannot be stopped, that Christ is in control. We've seen this already, right? He is orchestrating this whole thing. Everything happens exactly as Jesus said it would happen, according to the scriptures, according to his own will. And what God promised in the scriptures and what Jesus came to do is to bear 
the sins of his people, to be numbered among the transgressors, pierced for our transgressions, considered a transgressor, not because of his own guilt, but because of ours. In theological terms, we say that our sin is imputed to Christ on the cross. It is our sin, but the guilt is credited to Christ so that he pays for it. Christ is counted guilty for the sins that you and I have committed. The verdict of condemnation and the resulting punishment fell on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or Colossians 2, starting in verse 13, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that had stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, to the cross. So the record of the debt, the legal charges made against us or that could be made against us were instead laid on the person of Christ so that as his bloody and battered body was nailed to the wood of the cross, so was your guilt, so was your sin, so were all of the charges against you, all of them. It's important to recall that Jesus is, in fact, innocent. He is not an evildoer. He is condemned not for any guilt of his own, but for our guilt. And in his condemnation, he took our guilt. His death is the wages of our sin. And so, are you burdened with guilt this morning? Are there past sins and failures that you are still beating yourself up over, can't get free from what you've left behind? Or are there present sins that you just can't face? Are you stewing in your guilt and shame? True freedom from all of that is found neither in the pit of self-loathing, nor the delusional excuses of self-justification, nor the endless treadmill of self-righteousness. Freedom is laying your sins on Jesus Christ, which is what God wants you to do. Lay your sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. Bring your guilt to Jesus to wash your crimson stains white in his blood most precious till not a spot remains. I know a fount where sins are washed away. So Jesus was numbered among the transgressions so that in him we might be numbered among the righteous. That is the first truth. The next truth is also expressed this morning for purposes of my outline, also expressed in the words of Isaiah in that same verse from chapter 53. Christ makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 34, the first response to the crucifixion comes from Christ himself. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, just as an aside, you may or may not have a footnote in your Bible saying that uh, this 
verse here, this part of verse 34, uh, Christ's prayer uh, is missing from some manuscripts. I do believe it belongs in the Bible. It's easier to explain why some early scribes might be uncomfortable with it and, and leave it out than why they would invent it. It does seem inconsistent, perhaps, with Christ's prophecies of destruction, but it also resonates with the attitude of the early church toward leaders in Jerusalem, even. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3, and now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. And Paul says the same thing ten chapters later, Acts 13, 27. Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And here's Paul again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So God alone knew what he was doing. He was in control, as he always is. The people of Jerusalem, the leaders, acted in ignorance, even if it was a willful ignorance. They ironically didn't understand the word of God that they were responsible for teaching that was read every Sabbath. But Jesus intercedes for them from the cross. Peter preached the gospel to them and called them to receive God's salvation. And they all point to an ignorance that, even though it doesn't excuse their actions, surely it does evoke a certain amount of compassion. I want to make just a brief aside here in light of world events and really history, ongoing discussions, um, that Christ's plea for forgiveness for these Jewish leaders ought to be enough to convince us that anti Semitism has no place in genuine biblical Christianity, right? Uh, there are ways of speaking of the Jewish leader's rejection of Christ that either deliberately or just carelessly open the door for the idea that because those Jewish leaders rejected Christ, that the Jewish people are forever to be rejected. That was not the attitude of Christ himself, though, was it? Nor was it the attitude of the apostles that I quoted in the book of Acts. Hopefully this goes without saying, but in, in history and even in the world today, it doesn't. Well, as I said, and as we'll see in even greater detail next week, there really are only two kinds of people in the view of Christ, in the view of the New Testament. When all is said and done, there are sinners who know they are sinners, and there are sinners who think they are righteous. Those are the only two kinds of people before God. Those who are ignorant of their own peril, even if it is a willful ignorance. And even then... For those who are ignorant, Jesus has compassion on ignorant sinners. It's a good thing he does, or none of us would be here. This is the point, though, that Jesus pleads for sinners, makes intercession for the transgressors from the cross. Forgive them. They know not what they do. We are surprised by this, maybe. Uh, how can Jesus pray to God to forgive the people who have conspired to murder him even as he is being mocked and is hanging there nailed to a piece of wood how is he not cursing them how is he not just spewing forth insults and, and anger his words seem so inconsistent with his circumstances don't they 
Except that they're not, are they? This is perfectly suited to the mission of Christ. This is exactly what the cross is about. Christ's intercession for sinners. His blood pleads for forgiveness. 1 John 2, chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. The word advocate there that John used is used in ancient legal contexts, and it's, it's difficult to find an exact equivalent because our legal systems are different than they were then. This advocate is something like a witness for your defense and something like your attorney who speaks on your behalf. In certain legal contexts, you'd bring someone along with you who could speak in your defense. You know, the most terrifying thing imaginable is not evil. It's not the scary monsters and super creeps that keep you running scared. The most terrifying thing imaginable is to stand before perfect justice, to stand before the consuming fire of holiness with all of your sins exposed and all of your guilt laid bare and to find yourself with no advocate, no hiding place, no plea to make. How will you answer Jesus gave us a picture of this in last week's text when he predicted the fall of Jerusalem and folks would beg for the mountains to cover them. Crush me under this enormous pile of rock if only you will hide me from the judgment of God. But there is no need to stand thus exposed before divine justice because there is an advocate who the Apostle John says is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. So these two points that we've made so far are right together there. Jesus was numbered among the transgressors and makes intercession for transgressors. He took the sins of transgressors on himself and based on this he is able to stand next to us before the court of God's justice and to speak in our defense. And no charges can be brought against you because if you are in Christ, all charges are already laid on him. And you don't need to make excuses for yourself. Try to explain yourself because Christ speaks for you by his blood. Mercy speaks through Jesus' blood. You don't need to work extra hard doing good deeds to convince God to forgive your wrongdoing and to accept you. God is already convinced. His own son pleads on your behalf. All you have to do is believe. Trust yourself to Christ who intercedes for transgressors. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough of a wonder to think that we have an atoning sacrifice for our sins and a mediator before the Father, one who suffered for us and pleads for us, that one is no less than the King of glory himself. As we saw in the trials of Christ, people keep trying to mock and to slander Jesus while accidentally proclaiming the glorious truth of who he is, right? And it happens here again in this scene of the crucifixion. The Jewish leaders, in verse 35, put it in, in Jewish terms. He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, meaning the Messiah of God, the, the chosen one. The Roman soldiers, offering him sour wine and mockery of the idea that he's a king. Basically, here's your 
a lovely vintage cup of vinegar to drink, but they mock him in, in terms that Gentiles would understand more. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And this is even the inscription that is laid on him documenting his supposed crime, right? This is the king of the Jews. As we will see next week, one of the criminals on a cross next to Jesus joins in this mockery of save yourself. The idea is same throughout, right? Save yourself if you are who you claim to be, the anointed and promised king. Because that's what kings and leaders are supposed to do in their the reckoning. They save their people, so they must have power to do it and power even to save themselves. This might be easy to miss because we tend to think of salvation as a merely a, a spiritual dimension. God saves our, our souls and, and we get to go to heaven. God rescues us from our sins, as we've just said, which is a beautiful truth. But the word salvation in scripture, this might sound strange once I say it, but it actually has in a sense, political roots. Going back to the Old Testament, what I mean is that God is the king who saves his people from their enemies. Go back to Exodus, uh, chapter 14 even. God saves them. Moses says, Behold the salvation of the Lord that you're about to see, that he's about to work for you at the Red Sea. And going forward through the timeline of Israel, the time of the judges, God raises up judges who are national leaders and through them to save his people from their enemies, foreign powers. Uh, trace this through the history of the kings and into the prophets. One clear example is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9. Uh, Zechariah prophesies, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. So salvation is the idea of, of rescue, saving people. And this righteous king will come and bring salvation for his people. This is a king's job to save his people from their enemies. Do you remember what happens next, what Zechariah says next? Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Mere days before the crucifixion that we're reading about now, just the Sunday before that Friday, Jesus purposefully arranged to ride in on a donkey to proclaim that he is fulfilling that prophecy. He is the king who comes and brings salvation. Those who mocked him simply had no concept of this kind of a king who would save his people by sacrificing himself. It's all about power for them, right? The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved, this is the power of God. This is how God powerfully saves us from our worst enemy. It's no surprise to me, I am my own worst enemy. Deliverance from enemies out there isn't enough. I need saved from what's in here. So the gospel of the crucified king is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So what should we say in conclusion? Well, God has provided everything you could possibly need to stand before him. Your sins taken away in such a way that no accusations against you are even admissible because they've all been laid on Christ. 
You can't afford an advocate, but one has been provided for you, appointed for you, to plead on your behalf with his own blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And this one who took your sins and speaks for you is none other than the King. The very one we confess every week is coming to judge the living and the dead is the one who pleads on your behalf. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There couldn't possibly be, right? If the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. I'm going to close with words of a hymn. Um, I've been wanting to have us sing this for a while, but I, I can't figure out what tune to use. There's an old tune that's kind of hard to play, and there's a more recent tune that Uh, If you've heard it, it sounds way too much like the theme from Friends. But the words are good. Uh, So I'm going to close just by reading these words. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, prayers that unfailingly work. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. And get this. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Let us now draw near to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that we are able to come before you, calling you Father, laying our burdens and fears and concerns before you, laying our sins before you because of the work of Christ, because he is the one who from the cross cried out, Father, Forgive them that his blood, his wounds, plead for us, speaking a better word than the blood of Abel, not one of accusation and evidence of all the things that we have done, but one that, in a mysterious and wonderful, profound way, takes all of that sin and guilt and shame and exposes it not in ourselves but in the body of Christ for your justice is satisfied your wrath is completely done away with and we are accepted reconciled to you you own us for your children your sons and daughters. Praise be to you, our God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All glory belongs to you.
pray that you would impress these truths deep into our hearts. Set us free from that constant temptation to turn away from this gospel, to beat ourselves up in self-loathing or to make excuses, lame excuses for ourselves and self-justification or to keep trying to work to prove ourselves in self-righteousness. Help us to cling to Christ who was crucified for us. Give us by your spirit this assurance that our sins are all gone, that we are reconciled to you. We know that this is what you desire for us to do. Not just for our good, but for your glory, because the glory does belong to you and to you alone, our great God and Savior. You are the one who has done all the work. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. All praise and glory be to you alone. In Christ Jesus' name.